Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Cassandra Leah Quave on The Plant Hunter. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine category for episode number 112 with Ewan Angus Ashley on The Genome Odyssey. This is Ewan Ashley, author of The Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Cassandra Leah Quave is the Herbarium Curator and Associate Professor of Dermatology and Human Health at Emory University. And she's the author of The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Cassandra, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? I mean, I think the goal was multifold. Um, I wanted to give more visibility to what it's like to be a disabled woman in a science career. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, reach out to readers and, and teach them a little bit about the amazing healing potential of nature and how much work we have still left to do. It's, it's a calling card out to all the future scientists. We need lots of people working on plants to, you know, fully understand their potential. So for those who are unfamiliar with your story, what exactly is the disability that you just referenced? Yeah, so I was born with multiple congenital birth defects of my skeletal system. And so basically I was missing a number of bones in my leg. I had other bones that were very short. And then later on um, around puberty, I developed hip dysplasia and really serious um, scoliosis to the point where I was beginning to crush my internal organs. And so you know, I've had one to two surgeries a year from the age of three to 18 and then a number after that. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> a lot of, a lot of hardware, um, work done on me. <laughs> and how did this really fuel the starting point, I guess, for what you realized at a pretty young age in comparison to a lot of other people who get into uh, adulthood and have no idea what they want to do? How did this help lead the direction for what you wanted to do as an adult? Yeah. So my path was, was not, um, always clear that I would become an ethnobotanist. I mean, I was so immersed in medicine as a child and I really looked up to my doctors as he, you know, my heroes. And so from a very young age, I always wanted to become a physician and then later, you know, decided on surgery. Um, and I went all the way through almost the end of college on that path And it was through a liberal arts education where I was being exposed to, you know, things from philosophy and anthropology that I really started to see and understand some larger ideas about what it means to be human, what is the disabled identity, and also what is medicine and what is health like in different cultures. And it was after kind of getting that type of coursework that um, I also, you know, in another course on ecology, Um, came across this book called Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice by um, Mark Plotkin. And that's where I kind of had that aha moment, like, oh, here's a field, ethnobotany, that brings together this interest I have in medicine and also in nature and the development of medicines. And that really helped spur me to go to the Amazon (laughs) as a senior, (laughs) rising senior in college, which reflecting back on, I'm like, wow, that was really a bold move. I'm just like, (laughs) you know what? I have to go. Um, And I spent six weeks down there, my first trip, volunteering at a research camp, 
working with a local healer to tend to his garden and then went back for another six week visit over the winter holiday break. And it was just a transformational experience. I mean, it really gave me that opportunity to, to become embedded within a different culture and to experience medicine and healing through a different lens. And there's just something to be said about, you know, you can certainly read about things and and talk to people about things, but experiencing it for yourself just really opens up new pathways. The healer that you learned from in the Amazon, his name was Don Antonio. Um, who exactly was he and what did he teach you throughout the course of these uh, these week-long lessons, weeks-long lessons? Yeah, so Don Antonio was an indigenous healer. He was trained as an ayahuascaro shaman, so someone that uses a brew of hallucinogens to kind of divine what's wrong with their patients. It was a diagnostic tool, but also um, to speak to the forest spirits, as he explained it to me, to understand which plants could heal his patients. I mean, he had a rough life. I mean, he, from the age of eight, he began his training as a shaman. It wasn't simple. I mean, his grandparents left him in the forest on his own. I can't, I have an eight-year-old. I can't imagine <laughs> saying, Hey, you're gonna have to stay out here. Here's a little bit of dried fish. And I want you to tap this tree and eat the sap that comes out and don't <laughs> talk to anybody and just be in the forest for a while. I mean, that would be terrifying. And, you know, he talked about that with me and it was a, a scary thing. And it was a hard, you know, lifelong training that he went through different, obviously from the type of training that, you know, um, my colleagues that are, um, MDs have in, in, in learning about medicine, but still incredibly valuable. And he was incredibly insightful and, and very, um, in tune with both the natural world and the needs of his patients. And so, you know, he taught me a lot about different plants that he grew in his garden that he collected in the forest and how those were used as medicine. And, you know, I was a skeptic. I was very much, you know, raised in this um, Western medical paradigm of surgery and pharmacy is basically equals medicine, right? That's, (laughs) that's, that's what medicine is. But through my work with him and observations of his interactions with patients and also a healing ceremony he performed on me, it just, it really opened my eyes to this vast potential, a vast untapped potential that um, other systems of medicine have, and especially of those ingredients that he used in his practice that hadn't really been studied by modern science. Some people may not have been listening closely when you started to describe him with this last answer, but he is uh, or was an ayahuasca shaman. And of course, that uh, that word has entered popular lexicon that psychedelic has entered popular lexicon, but you actually did go through that ritual around the turn of the century, long before it was cool to do ayahuasca and bring your iPhone to uh, tape the whole thing. Before we get to your personal experience with that, what is the ayahuasca process like from harvest leading up to the ritual itself? Yeah. So um, first of all, ayahuasca is considered an entheogen. It's a very special tool used by healers again, to diagnose their patients and also to determine how to best treat them. It's their way of communicating with the forest spirits. And it's actually not a single plant. It's a mixture of plants. And each healer, each shaman has their own special recipe. One of the key ingredients is a vine known as yahe, which they call the teacher vine. And um, many, many healers call it their teacher. So they look to the plant, not just as a source of medicine you chop up, but actually refer to it as their teacher. Um, and what's unique about the ayahuasca vine and the scientific name for any botany nerds out there is Banisteriopsis copy. 
um, is that it contains compounds that act as MAOIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. I know that's a mouthful, but these are important because they have antidepressant activities on their own. But most importantly is that when you combine um, an extract of that vine that's rich in MAOIs with an extract of another plant that has dimethyltryptamine or DMT, Basically what happens is it delays the breakdown of DMT and allows for you to have a very long, a longer hallucinogenic experience, um, much longer than you would if you took DMT um, on its own or um, smoked it or something like that. And so what's, what I want to make clear though, is, you know, I never consumed ayahuasca with Don Antonio. This practice of actually having the patients consume it is not that common in real traditional shamanism. Um, it's become more of a trend, this kind of ayahuasca tourism industry that's popped up, especially in places like um, Iquitos in Peru. Um, it's also being used um, in Colombia and other places where where this uh, these plants can be found. Um, but I also want to put some caution out there for people that are curious about it. You know, you do vomit and, and kind of have diarrhea. I call it a two bucket kind of experience. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's actually a very powerful pharmacological experience in that, you know, not all plants are safe and not all plants are safe to take with other medications. In fact, if you consume ayahuasca while you're also taking different types of medicines, especially for anyone with mental health um, issues that's on um, medication for those conditions, it can actually prove fatal. Even consuming it with cough syrup can prove fatal. So mm. it's really important to understand that these are not things that you just play with. And this is actually a sacred a sacred tool and a teacher. It's not something just to have fun with, if that makes sense. What's the story behind the Yagua blowgun in your possession? Yeah. So, um, while I was there, um, in, in the Peruvian Amazon, I, I was connecting with different communities in this um, region of the upper Napo near the Ecuadorian border. And, you know, along the main riverbanks of the Napo, these are mainly populated by mestizo or kind of, um, groups of people that no longer have or claim an identity that's indigenous. They're kind of Westernized. They wear regular, you know, flip-flops and kind of clothes from the market. And they don't have this kind of cultural identity any longer or speak different languages other than Spanish. In the forest, there are still indigenous groups, including the Yagua in the particular region where I was working, visiting one of these communities. And while I was there, this gentleman came out of the forest with his, his food, his dinner for the night. It was uh, a monkey. Um, primates are a, a source of food for many people in the Amazon. And in his hand, he had this, you know, tall, um, what looked like a pole initially closer. And I realized it was actually a blowgun. And I mean, for me, this idea with something that's completely made fresh from just the resources that they harvest in the forest was just such an amazing thing. And not just the actual blowgun, but also the pouch that holds all of the darts and the dart poison itself. And, you know, explorers have been long fascinated with, um, with dart poisons. I mean, it's this amazing um, brew. And if you think it just barely penetrates the skin, if you're trying to hit a, you know, a, a, a target that you're hunting way up in the forest canopy, you know, with basically the force of your breath and a little, a little dart, it doesn't go very deep into the skin. But what's amazing is 
the chemical mixture in that curare dart poison basically can cause a paralysis of the animal. They, they fall out of the, the tree and then you can collect. And amazingly, that's you know not poisonous to you when you eat it. Um, and this was one of the discoveries that, uh, you know, eventually revolutionized surgery. If you think about when you're going through surgery, um, and having anesthesia, the ability of the, of the physicians to relax your muscles for those surgical procedures is really important. And so we don't use, you know, tubocurarine, which was one of the major compounds in curare today in modern surgery, but it certainly inspired the future iterations of, of compounds that we do use in, in today's anesthesia. After you make the decision to not attend medical school, to pursue a career in ethnobotany instead, you take another trip to gain field experience. This time you travel to Italy. What was the biggest difference between that trip and what you had gone through in the Amazon? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the biggest difference, obviously, this is Europe. So it's, you know, <laughs> we're not traveling by dugout canoe in the Amazon any longer. <laughs> um, you know, there's electricity and, you know, hot water and all those fun things um, that you have. Much um, better pasta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazing food. Amazing food. Um, and for me, it was a really unique experience because it was my first time working with a team and really having, you know, training from someone else who had been formally trained in the art of ethnobotany, Mm. Um, you know, because early on I wasn't, you know, in graduate school yet. I wasn't, didn't, you know, I based my work off of what I'd read and studied, but it's a very different thing to have that kind of hands-on training. So I was working with um, Dr. Andrea Pironi at the time, who was a postdoc at the time and, you know, later has, you know, become a, a, a superstar in the field of ethnobotany, especially when it comes to the study of wild foods and food traditions. And so we were working in an ethnic minority um, population known as the Arboresh in, in some of the communities in Southern Italy, just a couple hours inland from Naples. And, you know, what was amazing about that experience was really, it taught me about the importance of food as medicine and how food and medicine are sometimes on a continuum. We call the food medicine continuum and that, you know, this use of food, especially wild foods, wild, bitter greens as kind of a healing, um, a healing aspect to the diet, um, was just really eye-opening to me. And, you know, instead of working with individual healers, which I did also do, I, I worked more broadly with, you know, many elders in the community that were able to share a lot of knowledge around how they use medicinal plants for healing all kinds of things from scrapes and wounds to headaches to stomach aches and so on. But I also worked with spirit healers. And so that was something that definitely surprised me. I mean, I kind of anticipated a a heavy spiritual aspect to healing in the Amazon, but I hadn't expected that in Italy. And in fact, it's a very much an important component of the traditional healing system in some of these rural villages. And that was just an amazing experience. Yeah. Speaking of those spiritual afflictions, what is evil eye and how do they cure it over there? Yeah. So evil eye, they call maokyo or like, and it's basically an, the easiest way to describe it is kind of like an envy disorder. So, um, you know, if, if I go to your house and this is, I'm very ashamed to say a mistake I made all the time because I was raised by the way, in the Southern U S where it is polite to compliment people on the objects in their house. It just comes a second nature say, Oh, what a beautiful tea set. Or, Oh, I love how your, your kitchen, you know, your tablecloth looks or whatever. It's, it's just kind of a 
chit chat kind of thing we do in the South. And um, so I did that in Italian in this village. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I was basically not quite casting a curse, but basically putting my host at risk for the evil eye because I wasn't saying God has blessed you after each compliment. And so the evil eye under this, this idea of envy is basically when someone compliments or admires something that you own, but they don't follow that with a blessing, a spiritual blessing, like God has blessed you, or thank God you have that, you know, um, then it basically opens them up to have some um, symptoms, which can include kind of a, a very peculiar headache, that has to be healed by a spirit healer through rituals that involve prayers and touching and, and kind of making the form of the cross on the head. Um, it gets really tricky if you make the huge faux pas of complimenting something that they can't give away. And so one way that they're able to protect themselves is they'll give you the teacup, say, oh, well, here, you take it. You like it, you take it. So I had all these odd knickknacks. I kept bringing home lines, like, why are they giving me all this stuff? I don't understand what's going on. Um, and it wasn't until later they explained it to me. But let's say if you if you compliment a baby, you know, you see a beautiful baby in carriage. Oh, what a beautiful baby, you know, but you don't say God has blessed you. Often someone else would jump in and say, oh, God bless him huh. uh, or God bless her um, to protect the child from from you inadvertently causing the child to become sick. Um, so there are all these like interesting kind of cultural rules that I had to learn. And it also was a, a big educational moment for me that, you know, to really try to become more open and, and really attentive to these types of, of cultural traditions. I guess that same line of thinking comes into play when we say, God bless you to somebody who has just sneezed. Like that goes back to this belief yeah. that uh, your spirit is trying to li- leave you and you say, God bless you to keep that from happening. Exactly. Exactly. We do some of these things today and we kind of have lost like the why that we do them. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing the the people that heal these. Again, they're not necessarily healers that are using plants as medicine, but these are people that are that they make it a part of their routine of their life is that they're available to others when they're in need. And I found that to be really interesting. It's like multiple people in the community could heal this disease, and it's kind of like a you know there's a lot of attention, there's a touching. There's this sense of goodwill towards the person. And I think when anyone's going through a rough time, how much, how nice is it to have a friend or someone really give you that attention that you need? And I think, you know, there, there are a lot of aspects to medicine that are very, you know, psychological in, in, in the ways that they work that we still don't, I think, fully appreciate in how we practice medicine today. Well, not only did you acquire a ton of knowledge in Italy, you also acquired the love of your life. Marco, on that very first trip, you uh, meet, you do fall in love, you stay in touch over time, visit one another. When you go back to the States, he'll come to the States. You will go back to Italy. Eventually, y'all do get married and come settle back in the U.S. And you eventually find your way to a graduate program at Florida International University in the Miami, Florida area. You admit that this time taught you to use the totality of your senses for the sake of exploration. What do you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, 
So I'd had these fueled experiences, learning from healers, working in, you know, with someone else that's experienced in ethnobotanical research, but I hadn't had formal training in botany until this point. I mean, I didn't know really how to make these identifications, how to use these botanical keys to sort out which plant is which and what its scientific name was, and, and also how to run these kind of chemical analyses on these species. And that's what graduate school really did for me. And so when I talk about using the totality of my senses, it's really, you know, using my senses of touch, of smell, of taste, of, 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 of vision to look at all the different clues that plants give us as a way of determining, you know, which species they were. And, um, it was just, it was, a, it was an intensive period, you know, because you're learning a, a very, um, there's a lot that goes into learning plant taxonomy. Um, but it was an incredibly um, important phase of my life for developing as a scientist that can go out and identify plants. From there, after uh, a few years, I believe your family moved to Arkansas for an opportunity that you took with the University of Arkansas for medical services. Your focus there was how microbes cause disease. So how do they? Yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of bolster my training in microbiology. My In my dissertation work, I'd looked at, you know, some of these traditions in Italy where they used plants to heal different skin diseases. And we discovered, I discovered in my dissertation research, some interesting plants that not only worked as antimicrobials, you know, limiting the growth or survival of bacteria, but also some that reduce their ability to stick to surfaces and to um, coordinate the release of toxins. And so that training in Arkansas was really all about understanding the pathogenesis or the pathways that bacteria use to kind of foster serious disease. And then using those tools from that training, I was able to take an even deeper look at the pharmacological potential of the plants I was studying. Why do some infections persist more than others? Well, a good way to think about this is, you know, I think all of your listeners have done this at some point. Maybe they did it this morning is if you've rubbed your tongue over your teeth in the morning before you've brushed your teeth and you know, that kind of slimy, gritty feeling you feel in your tongue, that kind of start of plaque buildup. Well, that's actually what we call a microbial biofilm. So basically in order to foster their ability to survive, because when they're in individual status, bacteria are at their most vulnerable. And so to kind of build up a stronghold or a way to defend themselves, they'll exude these, you know, um, sugary matrices and embed themselves in that. And so you feel on your, on your, on your teeth in the morning is basically that those bacteria that have stuck themselves to your teeth with kind of a slimy matrix that they exude. And they're trying to basically build up a, a stronghold. And so what happens is when we, when we brush our teeth, we disrupt that biofilm and we move it off of the surface. But when you can have problems with infections, you can imagine what happens if such a, such a biofilm forms on your hip implant or your knee replacement or on your IV catheter in the body. So currently in medicine, the only recourse we have is to remove that device and subject the patient to really intensive antibiotic therapy and then replace the device. Um, and so what I was interested in looking in were plant compounds that are able to stop that process, stop 
the ability of those microbes to stick to surfaces as one strategy to reduce their ability to kind of cause this long-lasting infection. You achieved what you consider to be your first major breakthrough in Arkansas. What was it exactly? So in Arkansas, I um, filed my first patent on the discovery of a mixture of compounds that we discovered in blackberry roots. And so going back to Italy, I documented how people would use the leaves of blackberry species to treat kind of non-healing wounds and ulcers and, and kind of anything oozing and pussing on the skin. I, I, I ask people fabulous questions <laughs> during these interviews. And so um, I also noted that they use the roots to treat hair loss. And so I cr- collected the leaves and the roots. And we found, I found in, in, in those studies, you know, that there were compounds both in the leaves and the roots that blocked that process of the ability of bacteria to stick to surfaces. And, you know, since then, um, since patenting and licensing that compound to um, my startup company to Phytotech, um, we've tried to push that science um, forward um, further. And it, it's taken much longer than I had, you know, anticipated just because it's really difficult, you know, to navigate the regulatory hurdles of develop, bringing a new drug to market. Um, and there's also bringing forward new antimicrobials. So the economic market is 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 very challenging in, in that standpoint. But we have made progress. We're working now. We've sublicensed out a piece of the technology to another company who um, is based in Boston. This is um, Firefly Innovations. And they have a lot of expertise in bringing medical devices to market. And so we're working with them on developing a um, an all-natural kind of eco-friendly bandage, a medicated bandage that has this blackberry extract in it with the goal of using it to treat, um, to use on patients that have kind of non-healing wounds. This is really important, especially for the elderly, right? Mm -hmm. When you have these bed sores and kind of diabetic foot ulcers and these open bedded wounds that just never really can be healed because of issues with circulation. um, And also because they tend to be entrenched with biofilm on the surface. And so um, I'm hopeful. We'll see if we make it past the gates of the FDA approval process. Um, but that's just one of the the many projects I'm hoping to push forward towards the clinic. Had to be a pretty cool moment for you to get to launch your own lab in 2012 at Emory University, one of the premier research universities on the entire planet. And you have done a phenomenal job of continuing to grow it since then. Of course, like with so much else uh, nearly 20 months ago, your lab was affected by the pandemic Eventually, you received funding for a project specific to COVID. Uh, What exactly was the path for y'all once you received this funding? And have you uncovered anything beneficial in helping us all out with this disease? Yeah, I mean, I think like so many scientists, I felt this great need to do what I could to help out in the fight. And, um, you know, what we were able to secure funding for was a project to screen our large chemical library. So in these many years of field expeditions and work in different countries and in the U.S., I've amassed a collection of over 600 medicinal plants that are used specifically for infectious and inflammatory disease. And we've created over 2,000 extracts from those plants that we use in um, our drug discovery Um, platform. So basically we can take pathogens and test them um, with these compounds in the hope of discovering new therapies um, from nature. 
And so I wanted to deploy this amazing tool that I have in the search for possible um, inhibitors for SARS-CoV-2, the the virus responsible for COVID-19. Now, one of the challenges, of course, in working with with this virus is that you really need a high level of biosafety um, security clearance because it is a respiratory disease. Um, you know, you kind of need the the spacesuit kind of set up so that you can work with. Um, you can work with this kind of virus in a safe way. And there's only so many of those types of laboratories of biosafety level three laboratories in the country and even fewer biosafety level four laboratories. And so I kind of had to wait until some of the tools came along. I'm not a virologist. I mean, I openly admit that, but what I can do is once I have a tool, a biochemical tool that we can use to screen against our compounds, we can do that. And so we found a level two safety tool, which basically takes a piece of the virus and looks for its ability to get inside of human cells. And um, we were able to screen our entire library. And after much rigorous testing, we've now narrowed down the scope to three extracts from three different species that are currently being tested by a collaborating lab in live virus. And so um, we haven't yet published these studies. I'm being very cautious because of the fact that we work on plants. My you know, there are valid concerns about people going off and, and trying to make their own remedies from these. And so I want to make sure that we can present as much safety and efficacy data as possible when we do release this data. Um, you know, and again, these are laboratory studies based in cells. We haven't brought them to animals yet. Um, so there's still a long path ahead, but I'm really, really hopeful with what we've found so far. Gosh, best of luck with that. And I'm just now realizing 30 minutes wasn't nearly enough time to Uh, Give the plant hunter its proper due. We didn't even get to foxgloves or chestnut tree leaves or even something like sea cabbage. But alas, you're just going to have to buy and read the book to find out about those things. She is Cassandra Leah Quave, the herbarium curator and an associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University. She's also the author of the new book titled The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Cassandra, I loved this book for a lot of reasons, including your ability to weave your very unique story into what is a really cool profession. Thank you so much for your efforts there, and thank you for the time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Join me next time when I speak with journalist and author Josiah Hesse on Runner's High, how a movement of cannabis-fueled athletes is changing the science of sports. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.